Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz, I am so very pleased to welcome you to Exit Strategy. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure, Stephanie. Really, really a pleasure to be on this podcast with you. Thank you. So I just want to say for our listeners who you are and what you do, what your day job is. Rabbi Steinmetz is the senior rabbi at Congregation Kehilath Jeshren in New York City and is known, I would say, nationally and globally due to your frequent and thought-provoking columns in the Jewish media about issues across the spectrum of Jewish practice and ritual. You previously served pulpits in Montreal and Mount Vernon, New York, and I have to add that you are a proud member of Plaza Jewish Community Chapel's board. I want to start by talking about the August column that was in the Jewish Journal that generated a lot of conversation. And the title was Consolation, Not Closure, which I think is just such an interesting title. So talk to me about what the genesis of this piece was. Why did you write it? And again, I just want to mention for our listeners that a link to the piece will be in our episode show notes. I wrote it because I've been doing this for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I have gone to too many funerals that I'd want to count. And, and I've gone to funerals of all types. I find that our relationship with grief is unnatural. And there's a lot to be said about that. And, and hopefully we'll get a chance to unpack it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I find the contemporary relationship with grief to be unnatural and this push for closure, which, by the way, begins immediately at the funeral. I'm a very mild-mannered man, so I don't protest, but I cringe when I hear the words, a celebration of their life, because mm. there are people who are grief-stricken. It really doesn't matter how old or how young the person is. Grief is always there to sort of force people to censor their grief, I find it to be very wrong. And, and that's why I find the word closure in particular to be very troubling. I understand part of the concept, but I find it to be very troubling because I think it is really part of a societal need to clamp down on grief and push it aside. And the pressure that it puts on the mourner. It makes them feel abnormal. And the large part of what's going on is that there is this need to feel good, both for the mourners and frankly, for their friends. Everyone wants to get back to normal. They want to feel good about things. Grief doesn't allow you to do that. What has happened is, first of all, we are focusing almost exclusively on helping people find comfort. Comfort is not necessarily what we should be searching for. We live in a world which is actually far more comfortable than it was 150 years ago. And one of the ironies is, as the world becomes more comfortable, the less we are capable of tolerating grief. There is a, a book that was written by Greg Easterbrook called The Progress Paradox. And he builds off research done by various different people Part of it is, is that as things get better, we actually complain more and demand more. That's what's happened with comfort. When grief was ever present, when actually burials were, were part of the community and part of the communal life, right. people knew, okay, death is part of, of the experience. 
and grief is part of the experience. And people knew that terrible things do happen in life and tragedies occur. That's just how we live. Then people were more capable of actually accepting the grief. And nowadays, when things have become much more comfortable and people find it far more challenging to deal with grief, and that's why they're constantly trying to find, okay, what's the closure? People don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't know what it's like to sit in an uncomfortable place. And people are doing that as they're grieving. And you're so right. People want to get back to that place of comfort. Part of it is that we're untrained in grief, frankly. In other words, thank God we're untrained in grief. And so it is very foreign and very shocking. That goes hand in hand with the fact that we've turned grief into a psychological problem rather than an act of meaning and an existential meaning. There was this terrific article in The Atlantic recently where a woman was talking about her own grief. She lost a 38-year-old son, and she's a medical researcher. And she started to dig down on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her <laughs> five stages of mourning, which actually came from her earlier writing about how people deal with death. And, you know, the five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. She then turned it towards grief. And, of course, no one goes through these processes in that order. And, as the author of this article points out, there's no basis for this. These may be emotions that people experience during the grieving process, but there's no empirical basis for anything that Kubler-Ross wrote. And yet this has become almost biblical wisdom. This is how we go through grief and we go through the process. It's because we've turned grief into a psychological problem. So the question is, is okay, what do I have to go through to get to the other side and be comfortable? Right. And I think that's the wrong question. The question that has to be asked is, should we ever be comfortable again? And how do we honor the lives of those who have passed away? That, I think, is the mistake. And part of it is that when we turn it into something psychological, and that becomes, so to speak, our grounding myth, we want to find closure, then we completely lose what would be part of my business, which is the spirituality and meaning of grief. And there is a spirituality and meaning to grief. And that is very much a part of the process of the Jewish mourning process. You know, people tell me, oh, Shiva is great because it makes you feel comfortable. And maybe it does bring uh, people some comfort. But the purpose of the Shiva is to honor the deceased. The purpose of the Shiva is to help people process the memories and make that legacy a part of their lives. Yes, for sure. And we know that the ritual and Shiva is a gift to the family and to the mourners. Then Shiva ends and people have to learn to navigate that path, which is a new path for them. You talked about consolation. It's a far more challenging task than grief. I've never heard those words together, consolation and grief. Talk about that a little bit. I find it fascinating. It's interesting because obviously we do understand consolation as being very much part of the process. We call it Nichum Avelim, coming to console the mourners. There are so many Talmudic stories about rabbis coming to console the mourners and telling them different things, some of which I would never in my own life ever say. 
but the Talmud records everything. And, and so you have lots of really unusual and different perspectives. But the interesting thing in Hebrew is that the word for consolation, nechama, is the same word as the word for regret. And the question is, is why is that so? And this is a theory that's offered by, by various rabbis, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who is a famous German rabbi from the 1800s, and Rabbi Tzadok Cohen of Lublin, who was a Polish rabbi of the same period of time. And they both talk about nichum, about consolation being a reframing. But what does it mean to reframe? And I think reframing means recognizing that there's a loss and that you can best honor the person by living and bringing that person into your life and honoring them by the way that you live, by remembering them every day. One of the paradigms that they now talk about in terms of grief is growing around the grief. There are losses that will never, ever be overcome. There are losses that will forever cause pain. That's just the reality. My father died in a car accident at a very young age, at age 42. And my grandfather, whenever he would talk about my father, my grandfather was the most jovial man, but the smile would remove from his face because you could see that the pain of loss was ever present. So consolation is a, is a very fascinating thing, is being able to honor the person's legacy through your life, not to close them off, not to forget them, but to say, okay, I'm having a simcha, and a lot of people do this, and they have a celebration, and they start talking about their parents. And I do this for a lot of families. Like, they ask me, can you, when you're at a wedding, under the chuppah, talk about these grandparents who meant so much to us? And that is what I call true consolation. You're sitting under the chuppah, you're shedding tears because you miss someone, and at the same time, you're celebrating life because you're bringing that person into the next stage, into the next steps of the family. I think without a doubt, it's one of the most beautiful things we do in Judaism is how we remember. And remembering and bringing, as you just said, people into the space and under the chuppah, my son is about to get married. We are all talking about how can we bring those who are no longer here, who meant so much to us, into the ceremony. So It's interesting. Yesterday, we had a funeral that was held here in our sanctuary. All of the grandsons were wearing the man's ties. Mm. He had beautiful ties. And this was their way of sort of bringing his presence a little bit closer to themselves. That, I think, is where consolation is. It's living the person's legacy, bringing the person with you, reframing and saying, I don't have them physically present, but their presence is never going to be lost. Yes. Unlike closure, which I think for many people is a form of forgetfulness, consolation is really about making the memory concrete and recognizing that lives from generation to generation are intertwined. One further thing before we get to the next question, but I, I had a friend who he survived the Holocaust. His father perished, his brothers and his sister perished. His mother managed to survive as well. And he used to talk about 
the guilt because the survivors have, have a terrible sense of guilt that they're the ones to survive and no one else does. And one of the ways that he sort of mediated that sense of guilt was by saying, I feel that my life is I'm living for them. Mm. In other words, that was his purpose. My purpose is to live on their behalf, to live for them, because I know that they would want the story to continue. I always remember that. He passed away four years ago, but I always remember that about him. And it was a very profound lesson. We look at grief, and this is one lesson that, that the listeners get from what I have to say. I'd be thrilled. We look at grief as a psychological problem. It is not. Grief is part of our search for meaning. If there is someone that we love, we're going to feel grief for losing them no matter what. And consolation is finding the way to continue to love after loss. That's what it is. In your column, you refer to, I'm, I'm going to quote you, our therapeutic culture, which focuses more on comfort than meaning. Talk about that line. I think it depends on the perspective. A pure search for comfort, which very often is the basis of some therapist's way of looking at things, a pure search for comfort would not work. I would say, am I at conflict with all psychologists, no, but I think a lot of pop psychology is very light and the entire goal is, okay, what makes me feel good? That's right. When people turn to me, there's sometimes people who are grieving and they'll say, oh my God, this pain is so awful. It's so difficult. And one of the things I remind them, I say, I want you to just think about this. If there were a pill that could completely resolve this pain and you would feel no pain over the loss of your loved one would you take it? And almost everyone says no, meaning that the pain that you feel over loss is spiritually meaningful because you would not want to just have it disappear and go to your loved one's funeral, your parent, your sibling, and be there with a smile on your face as if you were going to a baseball game. Most people would not take that pill. They want to cry. And the reason why they want to cry is not because it's some catharsis. They want to cry because that's the right thing to do. As you were saying this, I thought to myself, no, I wouldn't take that pill. I want to be in this space remembering the love I felt for someone. And we know this. When we love deeply, we're going to grieve deeply. Grief and gratitude are two sides of the same coin. Hmm. You grieve for those whom you feel a profound sense of gratitude. I'm curious to know, do you talk about grief and loss and mourning and death in your shul? There was a period of time in, in my career where I spoke about it a lot. And it had to do with a particularly difficult year where I had four deaths of people in their 30s with cancer. It was a time when it sort of forced me to think in a very substantive way about mortality. Now, I, I'd been thinking about mortality my entire life. As I mentioned, my father died at 42. Yes. My late mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. It really forced me to start to think about mortality. It forced me as a rabbi to recognize my limitations. You know, you think, well, okay, I'll go into the shiva and I'll make things better. Young rabbis are great, but 
They don't always have a fully sketched out game plan. I realized that the only thing I could really offer is my presence. That's about all you can ever offer, that there aren't magic words, there aren't magic ideas, and that the grief is actually meant to be there. It's meant to be there. It's enormous pain. But my own personal soul searching during those 18 months, so I spoke a lot about death until I think some of my members said, okay, like enough, enough death. I do talk about it from time to time. And, and this article is a reflection of that. I, I actually almost self-censor myself. So I don't talk about it too much because, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things to talk about and you can't just be grief. And I mean, in your business, you, you have to talk about grief all the time. But yeah. as Rabbi, like I said, you know, we were talking when we, before we got on, I mean, I was coming from a shiva. I, I got a phone call about another member whose brother passed away. You know, I'm going to a bris tomorrow and we've got a bat mitzvah and I'm preparing for a bar mitzvah and life is there. And so there has to be the balance. And I do think we don't talk about it quite enough. I thank you so much for not only being on the podcast, because I'm hoping this elevates end of life conversation as well, but because your insights and who you are in the community provide such an incredible perspective for all of us. Thank you for being in conversation with me today. It's absolutely my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you at a wonderful place. Thank you so much. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. 